Hello and welcome to Entrepreneurs Talk Africa, the podcast for African entrepreneurs. I'm Mark Israel, co-founder of ETA, a business angel, CEO, startup coach, and human being. And I have the pleasure of being your host for this episode. So today we continue our series of interviews focused on money, funding, raising funds. And I have the immense pleasure to welcome Arthur Mulwa, co-founder of Hey I Care. Arthur, thank you very much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, and I'm really happy to have you as a guest today. So uh, once again, for the audience, so uh, I was introduced to Arthur and AI Care through Mo Angels, so my uh, business angel syndicate. Um, and so uh, before we dive into our topic uh, for today, so I would like to plan the decor for the audience. So tell us a little bit more about AI Care, its genesis, uh, what it does, and how you came up with the idea. Okay, yeah, um, I think I'll go all the way back from where we started. Sure. We were incubated in the Antler Venture Capital Program here in Nairobi. So we were looking at different problems in different industries, um, looked at insurance as an industry. We we're very surprised to learn that more than 80% of motor insurers were losing money underwriting motor. So it's kind wow. of like uh, insurance is mandatory. So this is this freebie that's been given to the industry by the government, yet all the companies are losing money uh, running wow. that business. So it kind of piqued our curiosity, dug a bit deeper, found that um, the, they didn't have capabilities of measuring individual risks. So we usually think of insurers as great risk measurers, but actually in this case, they aren't. Um, their products were very outdated. Um, they've remained the same in form and substance over the last you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years with very little change in them, which means that now as uh, modernity has come in, as the number of vehicles on the roads have increased, they've not really updated how they do their, their business. And then finally also fraud was something that they complained about a lot. So when you look at all these three things, um, we tried to look at some of the more advanced insurance markets and tried to see, well, they look like fairly mundane things that must have been solved in at least one or two countries. And telematics kept coming up as a means of solving these problems. So telematics is just using a device to measure how well or how badly someone's driving. And then on the basis of that data, using that data to underwrite your policy. So the next question automatically was then, if it's such an obvious thing that non-insurance professionals were able to see it, why isn't it happening in, in many countries? And we found things like cost, things like the types of solutions, like you know, if you pull a solution from London where traffic lights work, where there are no potholes on the road, where people drive in an orderly fashion and then transplant it directly into Africa, well, it's not going to perform as well because there's yeah. a lot of risk that are prevalent in this part of the world that might be unique to this part yeah. of the world. So um, alongside my co-founder, we looked at what skill sets do we have? Are we able to build this from the ground up? And having, coming, having come from a risk background, uh, trading on Wall Street on some illiquid assets, I figured I'd be able to handle the pricing part. My co-founder was already working on his PhD in spatial artificial intelligence. So building the tech side of it and the analysis side of it was also a strong suit of his. So we thought, you know, working together, it's something that we'd be able to build. And so that's where we started our journey. 
along our journey, we've learned a lot about driving in Africa, about <laughs> the challenges of setting up this kind of system. You know, when you're looking yeah. at it in theory, it looks very easy, but there's there's a lot of challenges um, that come along the way. I think I'll stop there for now. And if, if you have no, no, questions, it's, like, yeah, it's it's mm -hmm. it's it's a great story. So, and and talking about challenges, so what what was your biggest challenge or biggest challenges while while dealing AI care? Um, well, from a technical standpoint, uh, I think we underestimated what we were biting off. Um, we were able to yeah. put together a very quick prototype, which made us super excited about how quickly we will be able to grow and take over the market. Then as you start doing it, you realize a company is not just the tech, it's the operations behind the tech. It's the marketing of the product, it's the mm -hmm. customer acquisition, the customer lifecycle. And you realize there are many, many, many other problems that come up once you start peeling that onion. Huh? The, um, and, and as you're doing that, you also learn more. You learn that you need a larger team. You need people with other sorts of yeah. skill sets. So I think that's the first thing that even though we were second time founders, all of us, um, okay. with this experience, we, we did realize that the, we, we kind of thought our growth trajectory would be faster than um, than we had. And then, you know, the second one is obviously the topic of this, uh, this podcast today um, around funding. Getting early stage funding in this part of the world uh, can be can be quite difficult. So, especially if you're trying to build a solution that requires the kind of team that we needed to put together to get it successful, that was a bit of a problem. And then finally, also just working on B two B sales with uh, you know people like insurers uh, again, it takes a very long time to to sell to that segment. And so trying to figure out tricks to shorten that sales cycle was an interesting challenge, I would say. Yeah, and, 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 and talking about funding, so yeah, early stage funding is, is, is tough. It's probably tougher than you know, in, in Paris, London, or, or Los Angeles for sure. Um, but, but where did you uh, find the, the, the money to start AI care? Was it your money? Did you raise some early stage funding? How did you start? Um, so yeah, it was self-funded for the first year. We did get a small ticket from Antler as well that helped uh, put some stuff together early on. Um, but yeah, it was largely self-funded as we had a lot of confidence in our solution. We did okay. think that we would be able to, to crack that nut and we have. So we've been vindicated on that front. But, but you said so you had a lot of challenges along the way so you know you know finding that the life cycle or the sales cycle is longer uh, those kind of things yeah. so were you completely prepared uh, from a, from a money perspective really to sustain a long period of time without external funding or was it kind of a struggle and you did not anticipate that it would be so long yeah i mean it was very honest it's not some we didn't anticipate the length being the length it was we assumed that, for example, within three to six months, you'd be able to close an insurer with a product that you've just started learning about. Now, whenever anyone would tell me something like that, I would laugh. Because, <laughs> yeah, it does take significantly longer than that. So I yeah. think some of the, I would say, the reason why startups are able to disrupt spaces is because they come in with that bold naivety around the problem they're trying to Love solve. It. Someone told you that you'll have 18 months of selling without a breakthrough. 
then you think twice about dedicating your life to that. But if you think you can crack it in three months, then you'll get on with it. And as problems come, you'll solve them as they, as they come along. So yeah, at some point in that early journey, we had to start or slow down our growth and look at how do we raise funds to allow us to really meet the milestones of, of what we're trying to do. And, and, and how did you, did you prepare? Because we're raising funders, well, it's something, I don't, well, if, you, if you're coming from a finance background, so I think that may be a little bit easier, uh, but what, what your preparation, uh, what was your preparation looking like? So one huge advantage when we were starting this company, the, the Antler program, Antler is a VC themselves. VC, yeah. So from the beginning, like we did have a pretty good idea of what uh, VCs look for in a company. And again, naivety at that point, we thought that, yes, now that you know the formula, if you apply the formula, it works as advertised. But again, such is not life. Life is not linear. That's the beauty um, so of marketing. We, don't, don't believe marketers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so from our side, like there was a lot of learnings. Every time you spoke to one investor, they gave you feedback. And then iterating around that feedback, I think, is what got us to the point where we were much more comfortable in explaining our value proposition. We were also very clear about how we wanted to utilize the funds, how we wanted to come back into the market for fundraising later. So it gave us a chance to really be able to articulate everything we want to do from point A to point Z. Um, so it also helped us grow as a company during that period. Yeah. And, and, and um and so preparing uh, a funding round so requires so um, a lot of uh, a lot of preparation in, in paperwork and ensuring that you got everything lined up. Uh, you said yet that you learned along the way, but where you do you think that you were ready on the first uh, fundraising exercise you did, or it it, it get gotten better and better every time every time, and so your deal room became better as well. Yeah, so I think we've become better as we've gone along. Um, you know, there are some things around our value proposition that we thought were obvious. But you know, if you're looking at your deck every single day, um, you don't see the parts that don't make yeah. sense to other people. But once you start getting feedback from the first investor who might say no, because I don't think this will work or no, because I don't understand this, or even worse, if you're getting no responses at all, because people are doing a feedback and they don't make sense, uh, you, you learn to start experimenting. So I will send this cold email. I will send the deck with this as a leading slide. And sure enough, as you start getting responses, you realize the places that your deck is weak. Um, and, and then as you start getting into stronger conversations where you have investors looking into your deal room, you also start getting you know, different requests from different investors. Where is this document? Where is, um, how have you solved this problem? How have you set yourself up administratively for this? And then you realize, oh yeah, I never thought of that. Um, oh, did I need to sign that paper? Because as a young company, there's just so many things um, that you might not be aware of that are very important to, yeah. to have put together. So that iterative process, the, the, the quicker you can turn that around, the better you can make yourself for the subsequent investors that you talk yeah. to. Yeah, yeah for, for the sake of the audience, maybe because some, some of, the, uh, uh, of the listeners may not know what a deal room is, so just a, a quick, quick definition here. So a deal room is really a place 
Uh, generally, it's a shared drive, uh, Google Drive, uh, OneDrive, or whatever, where the startup puts all the paper, uh, PNL, uh, decks, um, shareholder agreements, and everything, so that uh, the, the investor can do a due diligence exercise, so look into the details and having a meaningful conversation. So, just uh, closing the, 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 the side uh, discussion there. Uh, and and <clears throat> one thing, one thing which is um, which can be interesting here is. Um, so how did you how did you accept feedback? Because sometimes it hurts, you know, listening to people say hey, your 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 solution sucks. Sorry for the bad word, uh, <laughs> or, or whatever. So did did you did you took feed did you take feedback? Say, well, this is good feedback, or you just try to say, really? What what was the what was the your your point there? I think I had one natural advantage here. Uh, my early career was in a trading room, and in a trading room, there is no mincing words. If you're terrible, <laughs> you're terrible. You had a bad day, you had a bad day. Um, okay. So I got, you had pretty thick skin from uh, yeah. that kind of uh, response uh, mechanism. But at the end of the day, we're all human. So, you know, people do get defensive about negative feedback. So yeah. it was about recognizing um, the lack of malice in that feedback and trying to see how you can improve. You might be defensive on the call with the investor when they tell you you're terrible, but when you're doing the post-mortem, trying to see, okay, do they have a point in what they discussed? Can I really try something different with the next person just to see if that was a real problem? Um, if you take all feedback positively without looking at malice or malicious intent, I think that kind of attitude will help you get further. And then yeah. there's sometimes that investors are wrong, because at the end of the day, not every investor is the right investor for you. So it's also taking that balance of, you know, knowing where you're correct and knowing where uh, to take that feedback and try and apply it. And it's a fine balance. Yeah, and, and, and you just mentioned something which is not, not every investor is good for you. So did, did you find people or investors in front of you that you really felt were not the right guys? Yes. Um, I guess when you're early in your fundraising stage, an investor just saying yes to start doing due diligence is an exciting, is an exciting process. So, um, if, sorry. so if, if an investor comes in and tells you they want to talk to you or they want to uh, see more of your deal room, they're interested in investing, early in the process, you'd probably say yes. Because again, in Africa, most people will want the money. <laughs> but as you go along, you, you realize that uh, the, the strings that come with that money might not be helpful for your company in the long run. So you start identifying people who, for example, are looking for the wrong kind of value out of your company. Maybe they misunderstood your deck and they want you to move in a certain direction and you're very clear uh, that you don't want to move in that direction. Or, you know, maybe their investment horizon does not tally with how long you think, you, how quickly you think you can make an impact. Now, if someone tells you they'll want to exit in two years and you're pretty confident in two years you will not have gotten to that sweet spot that you want to get to, maybe that's not money you want to take because they will be putting pressure on you to help them exit at that two-year mark. If you do yeah. think that you'll be able to give them that growth, then... So you start, you know, you start learning that. And I think a lot of that also comes from talking to other entrepreneurs that are ahead of you on their journey. 
Um, you know, you get the feedback and now you learn how to discern who you talk to, how you ask, how you find out the right kind of uh, feedback about different investors. And did, did you ever turn around investment because it was not the right investor? I think what, what I did was more of uh, cut the conversation before it got too far. Okay. So if you had a conversation with someone, they're somewhat interested, but from either feedback that you've gotten from other founders or from how that first conversation went, um, you just don't you know, keep pushing on. Uh, you know, some people have the luxury of 50 people coming to them so they can turn down money. We, we haven't gotten to the 50 people. We have had a couple of people come in at the wrong time. And if someone comes in at the wrong time, the, all I've said is I will reach out to you when, when I'm ready, when I, when I need yeah. that kind of fund. So yeah. I've, I've yet to meet like a completely terrible investor, <laughs> but I have met people who I didn't think were quite the right fit. So cut yeah. the conversation as, as early as I could. Yeah, no, it makes it makes perfect sense. So, <clears throat> and in a, in your funding round and and your raising your 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 funding exercise, so what what have been the biggest challenge that you faced? The biggest challenge is, I mean, first of all, just getting the right people. Um, there's a there's a real lack of information on early stage uh, investors in, in our markets, the, the InsureTech, and then generally just in this region. So first of all, just finding the list of people to, from whom to shortlist who the right people are is already a full-time job in, its, in itself. Yeah. Then um, once you're able to get those people, I think there's also some misinformation on how to value early stage companies. Um, I did meet a lot of people who were immediately interested in the revenue side of things. So for a very yeah. early stage company in B2B sales, um, that might not be the right metric to look at as, as a first metric, but if everyone has come from an accounting background or a CFA sort of background, then they'd be very, very keen on numbers and make all their judgments based off uh, accounting metrics rather than other traction metrics that might be relevant to the company. And so seeing that and trying to understand or trying to figure out how to get the investors to understand what the important metrics are for your company has been a challenge. Mm. Um, and like everything else, you get better at it, you get better at selling what metrics are important for you. But in the very beginning, it, it, it's a tall order because you assume that if it's a no-brainer to you, like why aren't all these other people seeing what I'm seeing about, about the potential value of what we're doing? But, but and that's, and that's a, I think it's a crucial point because um, we tend to look at, yeah, we look at the PNL, you look at the bottom line, okay, how much did you make last year? If you're one, two years uh, old, uh, how much you're gonna make next year? And sometimes it's very difficult conversation because you're making very little money. You're just building the product. You're starting the traction. The, the, the money was just a validation of your idea. So, but how do you how do you sell that 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 vision, that that value that you're seeing that others may not see? Do you have a, a silver bullet? 
<laughs> like a, there's no silver bullet. There's a lot of hard work in understanding what you're doing. Okay. But the, I would say in the, the closest to a silver bullet that, uh, that you can get to is, well, there is some value, right? There's a reason why you're underpaid, you're working long hours <laughs> in a garage if, 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 or in a shared office. So, and what keeps you, what gets you up, what gives you the motivation to do all that hard work? There's something that you've seen in the market you're working in. And then what have you done towards getting to what you have seen? If you've made positive strides towards that, how do you quantify that in 10, 10 words, 15 words? Like very quickly, I can tell you, uh, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm getting to. This is how far I've gotten um, in, my, in, my, in my, my, the progress that I've made so far, in my goal to get there. And if you're mm -hmm. able to articulate that very clearly, good storytellers raise money very easily. So if you're able to articulate that very well, then even a person who's numbers only can switch from numbers only and look at the metrics that you're providing them. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you're mentioning storytelling because I was actually uh, discussing with a, with a very early stage startup. They haven't even built their MVP, so they just pitched their idea a couple of days back. And, and I told them, it was two, two girls, and I told them, I, I, love, I love the idea that you're pitching, but the story is damn poor, okay? You, you have not made me dream of, of your things. I, I understand the concept. I see, I see what you want to do. It, it's, and I think that's a great idea. But the way you're telling it, it feels like, man, these guys are going nowhere. Uh, and, so, and so you really need to work and articulate that storytelling thing. Yeah. So wandering to room their mold. So let's go to Mordor and <laughs> let's kill that button. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, um, I mean, there's naturals who don't need to be told, yeah. who just immediately click. But if, you, if you're not a natural, like I don't think I'm necessarily a natural on that part, is you watch other people who yeah. seem to be doing it effortlessly. It's a skill that you can kind of pick up um, on how do I tell the right kind of story? How do I tell my vision in a concise manner? How do I tell my vision in a way that everyone wants to go to war behind me? You know, that kind of, you're the general of the, of, of the Rebel Alliance, whatever it is. You, <laughs> yeah. you see those speeches in movies, you want to be that person who can make that speech and get everyone to rally behind you. And that's basically what your pitch is. So yeah. there's a lot of examples out there of people who are great at doing that. Yeah, you watch a couple of Dragon Dance video, for example, and it will give you the, the, the good and the bad as well. So uh, sometimes the yeah. bad the bad is not that bad, but yeah, and the guys are sometimes unfair. Uh, but you you got brilliant pitch in a couple of minutes that you says, "Wow, I love the story." It's just maybe the the business model is crap, but the story is beautiful. So, yeah, yeah. Ah, so we're getting close to the end. That uh, time flies; it goes so fast. Um, so I have one last question, which is the signature the signature question of the, of the show, which is, what would be your top advice to young and aspiring entrepreneurs? Uh, when it comes to raising money? Patience. I think we hear a lot of stories about uh, people raising millions and millions of dollars, you know, yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars in valuations. And all of us uh, want to be that person. All of us want to be Paystack, selling ourselves to Stripe at $200 million. Or better yet, like growing to be as big as Tribe themselves. 
Um, but all of that takes time and everyone has a unique journey. Every company is different. Every market is different. So if you lose that patience, then you, you, you lose out on the opportunity of being able to grow at the right pace for your company. You'll find sometimes you're a good storyteller and you're able to raise you know, millions of dollars early. Well, that comes with its own pressure. So if you raise millions of dollars early, you'll fill seats in the room with people <laughs> who shouldn't have been there because yeah. you feel a lot of pressure to get, uh, to, to start showing traction yeah. when maybe your company hasn't gotten to the point where you need 50 heads, yeah. right? So patience is something that I, you know, I'm learning a lot. I'm learning that my company has its own trajectory, its own timelines. I will try and make them as quick as possible, but there are yeah. some things you just can't rush. And so, yeah. you know, go through the process. Yeah, and, 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 I, and, and I love it. I think that you're completely spot on and, and the exact way that you were talking a few minutes back about, you know, it takes time to grow to this, this sales life, the sales cycle is longer than expected. Uh, I used to say that revenue is always lower to what you expect and costs are always higher and it takes more time. So that's the basic equation that yeah, no, no, we're gonna we're gonna make twenty million in two months, and then we're gonna we're gonna spend nothing, and we're gonna do a, a eighty-five percent, um, you know, a, a net margin. Look at the guy says, yeah, well, that may not work that way, okay. Uh, but yes, it takes time, and I, I generally remind people that even the, the big names of the, of the industry, it took them years. It's just yeah, we see the results, but. And I think that you're right as well is raising $20 million is not a blessing. It's a bloody curse. Because <laughs> if you raise that, that amount of money or even multi-million dollars, it's just, hey, the guys who are going to give you that money, they, they want their investment back. So they're going to put a, a monkey on, on your back and <laughs> it's going to scratch your... <laughs> no, that's cool. So thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Arthur. That was, uh, that was brilliant insight. So, uh, and thanks to our listener who tuned up and are listening to this episode. So you've been listening to Entrepreneur Talk Africa, the podcast for African entrepreneurs. I'm Mark Israel, co-founder and CEO of the Talk Collective, the company behind Entrepreneur Talk Africa. And today we had the immense pleasure of hosting Arthur Mulwa from AI Care, an intertech startup based in Nairobi, Kenya. So you'll be able to find the link to AI Care and many other information in the show notes. So before our next episode, thank you for taking a couple of seconds to leave us five stars on the podcast app you're using. It really helps us. So thank you in advance and see you next week for more inspirations and actions from across the African continent.